Has the Lincoln theme been exhausted? Have we said all that can be said about Abraham Lincoln and found all the evidence there is to find? We'll find out from our guest Michael Burlingame when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Cosmopolitan yet friendly. Personalized service yet prompt. Elegant but not stuffy. Le Fontainebleau sets the stage for what will surely be a successful business lunch. Experience Nouveau Continental Cuisine, featuring a fresh salad and seafood buffet. An a la carte menu offers a mouth-watering selection of fresh fish, sandwiches, and pastas. The setting for this sumptuous meeting of the minds is La Fontainebleau at the Westgate Hotel, an award-winning restaurant catering to the professional involved in the art of deal-making and networking. The sensational salad and sushi buffet for lunch is offered weekdays with complete sensitivity to demanding schedules. Ask about the Friday night seafood soiree, Saturday night dining and dancing, and fabulous champagne Sunday brunch. For menus and special discounts, log on to westgatehotel.com or call Les Fontainebleau at 619-557-3655. That's 619-557-3655. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael Burlingame, whose voice echoes to us through the halls of the library at Columbia University, where he has graciously taken some time to, uh, uh, out of his research to speak with us on questions of Lincoln, Lincoln research, what else is left to be learned about Abraham Lincoln. The introduction to this segment began with a quote from James Randall uh, from the 1930s, asking if the Lincoln theme have been exhausted, and now here we are 70 years later. Michael, surely we have just about run out of things to say about Abraham Lincoln. The inner world of Abraham Lincoln, um, uh, back in the, the uh, late 80s and early 90s, uh, when I found this new material that uh, I discovered at Brown and Allegheny College and elsewhere, uh, and then started to go through the uh, phenomenal clipping collection at the institution where you were for a while, um, the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, I discovered an enormous amount of new material. So I said in the introduction to my my book, I said, uh, uh, a, a new version of Randall's paper might be uh, given, uh, entitled, The Lincoln Theme in American History, Has the Surface Really Been Scratched? Um, and that's a little facetious, but uh, there's an awful lot of new material to be discovered. And it's not just in the papers of the early biographers, although that, that's a very rich mine. Um, but another source that has been underutilized by historians is newspapers. Um, newspapers during Lincoln's presidency, for example, um, uh, have been neglected by historians who primarily focus on New York newspapers. They use the New York Times, New York Herald, New York Tribune, which are which is a perfectly understandable. Those are really good papers. They have big staffs and big budgets. But 
newspapers in Boston and Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, Cincinnati, Cleveland, St. Louis, Chicago, also contain an enormous amount of information about Lincoln that doesn't show up in those New York newspapers. Because think about it for a minute. If you're an Ohio general or an Ohio congressman or an Ohio um, representative or, or a general, uh, you, where do you go when you've spoken to the president? You go to the journalist that you know from the, the Ohio's Big Journal or from the Cincinnati Inquirer or from the Cincinnati Commercial or the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And what what is of interest to the readers of those Ohio newspapers is not necessarily of interest to the readers of New York newspapers. So, so I spent a lot of time plowing through uh, newspapers during Lincoln's presidency, and and I've discovered all kinds of statements that Lincoln made, allegedly made, um, which are oftentimes quite revealing. Now you have to treat this with a certain amount of caution because it isn't Lincoln talking directly to a newspaper reporter. It's Lincoln talking to somebody who then talks to a newspaper reporter, so it's secondhand, but it's fresh. It's it's the day of or the day after the conversation, usually. Now, uh, Don Fehrenbacher wrote the, the great collected, recollected words of Lincoln. Right. Where he, he uses quotes just like you're talking about, uh, things people said, things that Lincoln said to people who then wrote it down later. And he grades them on an A through D scale on their reliability. Are these, is this A grade material you're talking about? Um, I think it's B. Um, and and Fernbacher includes some of this in his book, which is an excellent book, Recollected Words of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, but it, the, a companion volume needs to be done, which would allow um, that portion of Fernbacher's book to be expanded. And I, that's one of the, when I get through my full volume biography, um, I, am, I plan to do a number of more editorial projects. Um, and one of them would be the words of Lincoln as reported in the contemporary press. Uh, and, and I would grade those too, but, but they would be uh, a B. An A is really something like John Hay's diary, uh, where, hey, that day writes down what Lincoln told him. Uh, and uh, since these uh, comments are... Uh, in the press are secondhand, but they're fresh. That is to say, they're contemporary. Um, they deserve uh, more than the C that Fernbacher awards to most sources. Um, and many of those sources are recalling words from years before. And you have to be careful with sources like that, because as Mark Twain once said, "The older I get, the more vividly I remember things that never happened." Um, Absolutely. So, uh, but then there, there's another kind of newspaper uh, source that has been neglected, and that is the pre-presidential Lincoln. And uh, it's been widely known that uh, Lincoln wrote for newspapers. Uh, he, his, his law partner said that he and Lincoln used to write for the Springfield newspaper all the time. Um, the uh, best man at Lincoln's wedding uh, said that uh, even when Lincoln was in New Salem as a young man in his early and mid-20s, he would write for the Springfield paper and send the writings, editorials, and the like to, from New Salem to Springfield, and he would carry them, he the best man, over to the newspaper office, and that he did this hundreds of times. So um, nobody, to my knowledge, has made a systematic attempt to identify the anonymous journalism that Lincoln wrote for the Springfield newspaper, and I've, I've done that. And I've come up with, I think, pretty sure, over 200 uh, pieces that Lincoln wrote uh, in the 1830s and 1840s 
um, which shed a lot of light on the early Lincoln, because we don't have stenographic accounts of his speeches uh, in his when he was in his 20s and his 30s. Uh, and so this allows us to see um, the young Lincoln more clearly and more fully than, than uh, we have hitherto been able to do that. Now, it was common in those days to write anonymous uh, political pieces, so this is nothing unusual for Lincoln to be doing. Right. But how, is it, how do you identify them, then, since they are anonymous? Well, it, it's, it's not as easy to do as it was with the Bixby letter. That is, you can't use these op-ed pieces, we would call them today, in the same way that I based the authorship or tried to establish the authorship of the Bixby letter, that is, various phrases and words. Um, uh, but it's a more of a question of general style, tone. Um, and we do know Lincoln, Lincoln acknowledged that he wrote one, uh, which got him into real trouble and led him to uh, almost participate in a duel because he ridiculed a Democrat who took umbrage at his um, belittling by Lincoln, found out that Lincoln wrote it, uh, challenged him to a duel, and the duel actually almost took place. It was called off at the last minute. So we, we know that there's one, and we know what it's like. There's another one where we've, we've been able to identify, too, where he belittles another Democrat. Um, there's a series of others uh, which most scholars would agree are by Lincoln, so that there's a corpus of about a dozen pieces which, which seem pretty clearly to be by Lincoln. And if you look at the tone, the belittling tone of Democrats, the ridicule, the use of sarcasm, uh, the uh, use of, of uh, slang um, and uh, dialect, uh, there is a pattern that emerges. And I, using that pattern as a template, I then apply it to the other pieces, and it's, they seem to fit. But they can't be established, their authorship can't be established with the same kind of uh, precision that I, I think I was able to, to bring to bear on the Bixby letter. But even so, it's, it's still pretty, pretty revealing. There's also uh, anonymous poetry that Lincoln wrote uh, for the newspapers. Yes, uh, yes that, including that, a poem about suicide uh, that uh, uh, Richard Miller, whose uh, first volume of a, of a Lincoln biography has just appeared, um, and uh, he he I had I had identified that as a Lincoln item too, um, although I hadn't published it, and he has published it and. Uh, it, 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 uh, he makes a good argument um, that this was uh, Lincoln's uh, suicide poem and that that uh, we had known from Herndon and from other Lincoln friends that he had written a poem about suicide and had published it in the newspaper, but it couldn't be found. And I think this, this is a, uh, an example of uh, something new that can be turned up with uh, diligent scholarship. You mentioned uh, the biography you're working on. Uh, how's it going? Well, uh, the first two volumes are all done as far as I'm concerned. They've been sent to outside readers. One of them's come back, and I'm revising it to uh, to take into account the very helpful suggestions that the outside reader made. I'm waiting for the uh, remarks from the other outside reader for the first volume to come in. And if as soon as that's done, uh, those two volumes can be published, um, which should be in a year or a little more than that. Uh, the, the last two volumes, covering the presidency, uh, are drafted, but uh, I still have some holes to fill in the research, which is one of the things I'm doing today, um, and uh, that needs a fair amount of literary polishing and buffing uh, before it goes to the printer. 
but they should all be out, and they may all come out together as a unit in 2008, or they may come out the first two volumes in 2007 and the last two in 2008. It just depends on printing schedules. Well, that is definitely something that the, the Lincoln world will look forward to. That, that I know has been a project of yours for a number of years. Well, there's nobody more eager to see it in print than I am. <laughs> I, I would think not. Um, let me, let's just pretend for a moment that the volumes have been published, and I'm a newspaper reporter assigned to ask you about it. My first question uh, is certainly going to be, well, was Lincoln gay? Uh, uh, I have what's your take on that? Right. Uh, I know David Donald, back in 19, our, our mentor, back in 1995, when he wrote his one-volume biography of Lincoln and did a book tour, said that that was the question that was most frequently asked to him on his book tour. And I suppose I'll be getting a lot of that, too. Um, uh, about a year ago, a book was published alleging that Lincoln was gay. And I was asked by the publisher to contribute an afterword to that book. And I said, well, I don't believe that hypothesis. I'm, I'm willing to believe it, but the evidence of his homosexuality is extremely dubious and meager whereas the evidence that he was romantically and sexually attracted to women is overwhelming. And uh, so you have a ton of evidence in one scale and an ounce or a half ounce of evidence in the other. You go with a, a ton of evidence rather than a half ounce. Um, and I published, actually, a, um, an afterword to that book saying as much, um, politely and, and uh, but still firmly, that, uh, that the evidence just doesn't support that hypothesis. And I don't mean to sound prudish about this. It... Uh, I'm certainly willing to believe that Alexander Hamilton was bisexual, as the recent biography by Ron Chernow uh, points out, and that a uh, good argument could be made for James Buchanan and other figures in American public life. But uh, the evidence in Lincoln's case is, is uh, pretty unconvincing. Well, if, if listeners want to pursue that, uh, then they would be well advised to go to the book you mentioned. It's by C.A. Tripp. Right. Uh, was it the the intimate world of Abraham Lincoln, That's not to title, be mistaken huh? for the inner world of Abraham Lincoln, which is your <laughs> book? Uh, but you're in both of them because in the intimate world, as you say, you the publishers gave you a, a chance to speak. That was a unique decision, I thought. I think Gene Baker has an essay supporting uh, Tripp's conclusions, and you have one uh, contradicting them. Right, and, and then another the, David Donald student, Michael Chesson, um, has a uh, an afterword in which he endorses. The hypothesis too. Yes, but it gives the, the reader a chance to really look, right. look around and see what they think. And um, what I do in my little oh, yes. twelve, twelve or fifteen page uh, afterward is just lay out the evidence for uh, Lincoln's being attracted uh, romantically and sexually to women, and it's, it's pretty strong. And then considering how uh, weak the the evidence to the contrary is. In, we have just a, a quick amount, a short amount of time remaining. A uh, quick question. Other than your own, what is your favorite Lincoln biography? Uh, Benjamin Thomas, uh, Abraham Lincoln, a biography published back in 1952. Uh, it has, it's a little outdated in, uh, in that it hasn't been able to, uh, the author hasn't, wasn't able to take advantage of many of the uh, sources that have come to light since 1952. Um, uh, but Thomas was a wonderful stylist, and he... Um, he had a temperament and a personality and a character, very much like Lincoln's. And he lived in Springfield, um, and um, he was a, a thorough researcher. And he, he was able to identify with Lincoln in a way that, that allows Lincoln to, uh, 
to come to life as a really three-dimensional, full-blooded, uh, living, breathing character in a way that no other biographer has, to, to my way of thinking anyway, um, been able to do. Well, I, I have no disagreement with that. I think Thomas's biography is, is, is wonderful. It is a, a great one volume and highly recommended to all. We're just about out of time, so listeners uh, do read the Thomas One Volume Biography if you're not familiar with it, and that will whet your appetite for the forthcoming four-volume biography by our guest today, Michael Burlingame. Mike, thanks for being on the program. Jerry, thank you for having me. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>